Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts, In Conversation. This podcast has been taken from the practical news updates at Beaver Congress 2021. Here, Sarah Smith discusses recent research and development in equine medicine. Next speaker is Sarah Smith. Sarah is a medicine specialist and works at jointly at the B&W Veterinary Group and at Western Counties in Western England. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, um, Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Um, I have no conflicts of interest to declare. Um, since there was no Congress last year, I've looked back at the medicine papers over the last two years, um, and I've tried to stick to papers that hopefully have a direct impact on people's clinical practice currently. Um, I've grouped these together uh, into liver disease, infectious respiratory disease, equine asthma, and then there's a few bonus topics at the end. Uh, so if we start with liver disease, the first paper I'd like to look at is by Howell and others uh, from EVJ. This was a descriptive study carried out in the UK. Uh, it had two parts. A part was performed with, as an abattoir study and the second half using live horses. They were looking at the prevalence of uh, fluke or fasciola hepatica in the UK. And they found that 2% of horses in their abattoir study had adult fluke present in the liver. These same horses underwent serology and they found that 9% of the horses were seropositive. So the fluke were present in a small number and more were seropositive. They then looked at live horses with liver disease and found that those that had liver disease were more likely to be seropositive than their compatriots. And in those seropositive horses, a third of them had no clinical signs. They also found that the fluke present in these horses were from the same population of fluke that is seen in sheep and cattle in the UK. So I think this is a really interesting study. It shows us that adult fluke are present in horses in the UK, um, but that many more horses are seropositive. So I think at the moment we don't have a definitive diagnostic test for live horses, but it's really useful to be aware of the fact that this infection is possible and to have it on our differential list when we're looking at horses with hepatopathy. I think the part where they showed that they are the same fluke that are present in the cattle and sheep also tells us that these horses need to have been exposed to co-grazing with cattle and sheep um, and certainly on wet pastures for the intermediate host with the snails as well. Um, the next paper I looked at is uh, from a group in Europe looking at Tyler's disease. So um, I think traditionally Tyler's disease has been seen as a disease that's present in America and not really a problem for us here. Um, it's otherwise known as serum hepatitis and is a frequently fatal condition that's associated with administering biological products, so most commonly tetanus antitoxin or plasma, and it's also been shown to occur following stem cell administration. Um, and then there's also been cases where in-contact horses of those that have had the um, biological products have also been seen. Much more recently, uh, equine parvovirus hepatitis has been proposed to be the cause of Tyler's disease, and this condition hasn't previously been reported in Europe. So this was a descriptive case series of four cases. The horses all presented with signs of depression. Two were also ataxic. One was inapptent, and one had a large colon impaction. They all had serum biochemical changes consistent with liver disease and liver failure. And three of these horses had had recent tetanus antitoxin administration. A fourth horse was a direct contact of one of those three horses, and they all lived on the same stud farm in Slovenia. All of these horses died or were euthanized due to the severity of their condition, and then the liver tissue uh, was examined. 
All of the horses, the liver tissue was PCR positive for the presence of the equine parvovirus and negative for other viruses that could have been responsible for hepatopathy. The parvovirus nucleic acid was also identified within the hepatocytes of these horses. The tetanus antitoxin that had been used on the farm in these cases was tested and was also found to be positive for the parvovirus. So the authors concluded that this is the first reported case of equine parvovirus hepatitis-associated Tyler's disease in Europe. I think this is something really interesting and certainly worth bearing in mind when dealing with any cases of severe hepatopathy. It's probably something that should be on our list to be checking out uh, with these cases. So if we move on to look at infectious respiratory disease, I don't think that we could review the equine medicine literature from the last two years without discussing this paper. Um, it's a paper from Andy Darham and Jeremy Kemp-Simmons in Equine Veterinary Journal looking at the use of Streptococcus equiserology. It was a retrospective clinical study performed at a single welfare charity with 287 horses. All of the horses underwent guttural pouch lavage and PCR and culture of those samples, as well as strep equiserology. They found that nine of the horses were guttural pouch carriers of strep equi, and then when they looked at the serology from those cases, if they used a cutoff of 0.5, one horse was seropositive, and if they used a cutoff of 0.3, three horses were seropositive. When they looked at this information the other way around, 25 of the horses were seropositive using a cutoff of 0.5, but only one of those horses was guttural pouch positive. So the study showed no association between serological status and guttural pouch carriage of strep equi. However, uh, partly I suppose due to the magic of statistics and that this population had a low prevalence um, of disease, there was a good negative predictive value of this test still. So this study certainly concludes that serology is not the gold standard for determining strep equi carrier status. And I think this is an important piece of information for our profession and that probably going forwards we need to look at how we address testing horses for strep equi carriage and uh, certainly disease clearance for movement. Um, the next paper looked at equine influenza and vaccination administration. I think in light of the uh, happenings in the last couple of years, this is a really important study. Um, it came from Ireland where there was an equine influenza outbreak that affected four racing yards in a local geographic area within four weeks. Uh, the authors looked back at the contributors to the spread of disease in these yards, and they found that there were significant failures of biosecurity measures, particularly of arrivals and returns, movement of horses within the premises, and also mixing of the racing and non-racing populations. They also found that there had been vaccine breakdown across all of the products. All of the index cases had been vaccinated according to the Irish Turf Club rules. So the authors concluded that annual booster vaccination shouldn't be the sole prevention measure, method for equine influenza. Increasing the frequency of boosters in young animals would be beneficial. Um, and also that synchronizing vaccine schedules for whole yards is contributing to high risk periods. So we know that the immunity from a vaccination booster isn't going to last for a year. So if they're only being vaccinated annually and that's synchronized, then there will be periods of time where the whole yard is at much higher risk than if the vaccines were out of sync across the yard. Um, this is just a short study, but I thought it was very interesting. It looks at rhinitis A infection and the duration of infection. Uh, we know that infectious respiratory disease is common in young horses. Um, 
And this was a prospective cohort study of 58 standard bred yearlings. They found that the attack rate for infectious respiratory disease in these yearlings was 87.9%, which I thought was really interesting. I mean, we know it's common, but it's 90%. It's pretty much all of them, which I think is worth bearing in mind when dealing with youngsters. The median time to recovery was six days, and they found that foals born later in the year recovered more slowly than those born earlier in the year. So I've included this paper only because I thought it was interesting because it showed such a high attack rate of infectious disease in these young horses. Um, the next paper, I'm afraid, you'll have to bear with me, the next two papers, I'm afraid, are about hygiene and cleaning, but I thought that they were important and interesting. So um, this first one is about equine herpes virus 1 and environmental persistence. We know that eradicating equine herpes virus 1 from housing can be really challenging. Uh, so this was an experimental study where they took inoculums of the virus and they applied them to various different substances that would be common to the equine environment, so leather, polycotton, shavings, straw, and plastic. They then kept the sample either at four degrees, basically in the fridge, um, indoors or outdoors, and then they measured the presence of the virus on those um, substances over the next 48 hours. They found the viable virus was recovered from all of those areas um, up to 48 hours after the initial uh, inoculum, but the quantity was decreasing over time. So this paper certainly supports the idea that eradicating EHV from housing can be really challenging. Uh, they concluded that we need to be careful to employ barrier nursing techniques. We need really rigorous cleaning and disinfection, uh, but also that we should probably be considering delaying repopulation. If we know that the virus is persisting for at least 48 hours, then putting horses back into these stables after a case or a suspected case of equine herpes virus should certainly be delayed. Uh, the next paper looked at the environmental persistence of Streptococcus equi. So I think it's very common for everyone that you might go to a yard and sample multiple horses with, for um, Streptococcus equi and cleaning the scope between patients. So um, I know that I've certainly in those cases wondered, am I sure that the scope is clean as we go from horse to horse? And so this paper is really nice from that point of view. They looked at disinfection of the endoscope and twitches between patients and they found that with routine cleaning of endoscopes, none were uh, culture positive after the scope had been cleaned, and almost all, 13 out of 14, were PCR negative after cleaning as well. They looked at twitches, and they found that these were all culture negative after cleaning, but that sodium hypochlorite was the only one that was eliminating the DNA with the cleaning process. So they concluded that with careful cleaning, the risk of patient-to-patient -patient transmission or sample contamination with DNA of strep equi is low. So uh, in the last couple of years, there's been quite a lot of development in the field of managing equine asthma. So we'll look at a few papers from this topic. Uh, the first um, is about feeding horses with equine asthma. So we know that hay and forage feeding is one of the main triggers for severe equine asthma. And this was a trial study of a novel feeding mechanism. So currently, the gold standard of dust-free or low-dust diet for these horses would be alfalfa pellets. So the authors of this study compared that with feeding hay that had been treated with soybean oil. So this uh, brown machine on the slide is the machine that they used. It's been developed in Canada and coats the hay with a fine coating of soybean oil. The study um, was a case control study and showed that the oil-treated hay had similar effects to the alfalfa pellets on lung function, airway neutrophilia, mucus production, and serum antioxidants. So the oil-treated hay seemed to be equally effective as the alfalfa pellets in these horses. 
I thought this was quite interesting because long term for most owners, feeding a pelleted diet is a very high maintenance, challenging and often quite expensive option. So this could offer a novel method for looking after these horses longer term. Uh, the next uh, two papers actually came from a, the group in Canada um, looking at nebulized dexamethasone in severe asthma. So uh, in recent years, using nebulized dexamethasone has become quite a common treatment option for horses with severe asthma. Um, but I think clinically, people had started to wonder how well it really worked. And this was a very neat study. It was a um, case control study uh, looking at horses with severe asthma. The horses were either given the nebulized injectable dexamethasone or oral dexamethasone at standard doses, and then they, the groups were reversed. They looked at lung function and at respiratory clinical score, and they found that the respiratory clinical score improved significantly in the group that were given the oral dexamethasone, but that there was no improvement in the respiratory clinical score in the group given the nebulized dexamethasone. So we can conclude as we know, already knew, oral dexamethasone is an effective therapy for severe asthma, but the aerosolization of injectable dexamethasone does not appear to be effective in these horses with severe asthma. Interestingly, both treatments did inhibit the hypothalamic pituitary axis, suggesting that there is some systemic absorption of the aerosolized injectable dexamethasone, even if it's not significant enough to result in a clinical improvement of these cases. The next paper follows on quite nicely from that in that the same group looked at the use of inhaled cyclesonide for the treatment of equine asthma. Again, it was an experimental placebo-controlled trial. This time, though, they used three different doses of the inhaled cyclesonide. They also had a placebo and a positive control, which again was the oral dexamethasone. The horses were treated for 10 days, and they concluded that the inhaled cyclesonide was an effective treatment for equine asthma and that in comparison to the inhaled dexamethasone, serum cortisol was unaffected by the cyclesonide treatment. Um, this last paper looking at asthma treatment uh, relates to the use of tramsinolone. So I think we're all familiar with the idea that tramsinolone is a potent long-acting glucocorticoid, but predominantly employed in the use of orthopedic disease. In this randomized study, they used 40 milligrams of tramsinolone, and I suppose it's worth acknowledging that uh, that's probably more than most people are using on a routine uh, basis in orthopedic cases, although I'm happy to be corrected by the orthopods. Um, and then they divided this either between two chalcocoral joints, or they just administered the whole dose intramuscularly. Uh, sorry, I should have said these were horses that had severe asthma. And then they showed that this single dose of triamcinolone was improving the lung function in these horses with severe asthma for up to four weeks. Um, I thought this was really interesting um, uh, in these cases of severe asthma. I think the authors took it one step further and suggested that the potentially enhanced, enhanced performance seen after triamcinolone administration in some cases may relate to their pulmonary condition rather than their locomotor disease. Um, but hopefully you might have more confidence in your diagnosis before you administered the triamcinolone. Um, I'm aware that those few papers actually cover quite a change in our approach to equine asthma and uh, something that's beyond the time scope of this morning. So I just put in here the fact that in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine this year, there's a really nice review paper um, looking, covering all aspects of glutocorticoid treatment in horses with asthma. So if anyone is interested, uh, this is the place to read more about it. So 
Um, lastly, we have a few unrelated papers. Um, this paper looked at gastric pH in neonates. I think in recent years we've all become aware of the idea that routine use of acid suppression in neonates is probably not appropriate, but these, this group went, went one step further and looked at the intragastric gastric pH of these neonates. So they were all sick foals that were being admitted to the intensive care unit and having indwelling nasogastric tubes placed for other reasons. The team then monitored the pH in these foals' stomachs over 24 hours. They showed that although the intragastric pH profile of these foals was really unpredictable and different between all the foals, the pH in the stomach was more than four uh, for 80% of the time in these foals, and therefore um, acid suppression isn't going to do anything in these foals um, and isn't indicated. So they concluded that indiscriminate use of acid suppression uh, in these foals should be avoided. And I think when this is combined with other previous literature showing that um, there can be negative impacts of acid suppression in these neonates, it really tells us that it's something that shouldn't be being used routinely. Um, this paper um, was looking at the safety of paracetamol in adult horses. We know that paracetamol is an analgesic and antipyretic medication and that it comes without the side effects of some of the non-selective non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. The mechanism of action of paracetamol is, not, is still not fully understood, but it's known to act in a predominantly centrally mediated fashion, probably why it avoids some of the side effects of the non-selective non-steroidals. In horses, it has good oral bioavailability and good analgesia, but there haven't been any studies looking at the effects on clinical use at a 20 milligram per kilogram dose or on multiple dosing regimes. So this was a safety study looking at the use of 20 milligrams per kilogram every 12 hours for 14 days. They used healthy adult horses and they did serial measurements of the paracetamol concentration, but also serial biochemistry, gastroscopy and liver biopsy. They showed that there was no accumulation of the paracetamol with multiple doses and that there were no negative side effects. So we can conclude that it's safe to use paracetamol in healthy adult horses at a 20 milligram per kilogram oral dose for up to 14 days. And I think this is something really useful to be adding to our analgesic armory. Lastly, this paper looked at atypical myopathy. This was an experimental study. They were looking at the effects of cutting and storing um, grass or pasture that had sycamore seedlings in or spraying with a herbicide and how this affected the hypoglycin A concentration. So the hypoglycin A from the sycamores is what's causing their clinical signs of atypical myopathy. They showed that there was no decline in the hypoglycin A concentration two weeks after the pasture had been mowed or sprayed and that the mowing caused a temporary increase in the hypoglycin A concentration. They also showed that the hypoglycin A was still present six months after the storage of the hay or silage. So from this, I think we know that pastures that are contaminated with sycamore seedlings certainly shouldn't be being used for hay um, or forage production, but also that mowing or spraying these pastures isn't going to control the um, presence of hypoglycin A on those pastures. Um, lastly, I thought it might be nice to look at a couple of papers that show us some of the exciting prospects for the future. I'm afraid this does step outside the remit of these being clinically applicable to any of us in the next few weeks, um, but I thought that they were really interesting. So this paper um, came from a group who've adapted a technique that's currently used in horses, uh, sorry, humans and dogs um, to take brain biopsies. So currently our diagnostic techniques for horses with um, central neurological disease are pretty limited and certainly limited um, to diagnostic imaging and CSF taps. So, um, this could be a very interesting technique for the future. They took this uh, method in which they use this metal frame which is attached to the skull 
and then you combine it with the three-dimensional imaging of CT to be able to really pinpoint um, a single location and take a very accurate biopsy. This was a cadaver study, but they showed in their cadaver study that they could very accurately biopsy the identified site. And this um, paper comes from the group at Ghent, who've done a huge amount of work looking at cardiac mapping. And they've been able to produce three-dimensional images of the electroanatomical um, activity within the heart by passing catheters into the heart and mapping the electrical activity. This has allowed uh, uh, huge advances in our understanding of arrhythmias, but also has already allowed them to begin treating a, few, a small number of horses with ablation um, of ectopic foci. Um, with atrial tachycardia. So this is a huge involvement in the field of cardiology and a really interesting area. Um, the author of this paper is presenting further work on this in the clinical research abstracts if anyone is interested. So I thought I would just summarize what I took away from these papers. Um, in terms of liver disease, I think we should all be including the presence of fasciola hepatica and the possibility of Tyler's disease in our differentials um, probably those two different things being associated with quite different presentations of cases of hepatopathy. And if anyone wants to learn more about this, there's a, a liver disease session later on today in which people will talk about this in much more detail. Infectious respiratory diseases, I think we've learned that strangle serology is certainly not the gold standard for determining strep equicarrier status, and that this is an area that warrants further discussion um, in order for us all to have a united view on how we should be looking at these patients. Uh, I think the flu outbreak and the paper that I discussed today have certainly told us that flu vaccine strategies for young horses require really careful planning, and um, Fleur will be presenting more later today about that flu outbreak for us all to learn from. There have been lots of advancements in the treatment of equine asthma, and we know that aerosolized injectable dexamethasone is not effective in controlling equine asthma, but there are other novel treatment options becoming available. We should be avoiding indiscriminate acid suppression medication in neonates, and we know that paracetamol is a safe and effective analgesic for the use in adults. Pastures associated, uh, contaminated with sycamore seedlings shouldn't be used for forage production. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash evj.